First of all, thank you all for taking the time to listen. Please, please, please recommend the pod. Please leave a review and a rating on the platform of your choice. Simply put, Pax Americana means the American peace. Itself borrowed from Pax Britannia, the British peace. That being borrowed from the Romans, Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That term, for me at least, is not just cow dung, not merely horse manure, but bat-dropping crazy talk that gives an honour of grandeur that exists only in the imagination of the most brainwashed. The Pax Romana was, in theory, a 200-year period from about Caesar Augustus to Marcus Aurelius, roughly 27 AD to about 180 AD. The Pax Britannia was the period of British imperial dominance from about the fall of Napoleon in 1815 to about the start of World War I in 1914. Was the planet at peace in those combined 300 years? Nope. To me, like Pax Britannia and Pax Romana, there was never an American peace. But what exactly there was, was American geopolitical hegemony. Like the British, it was a global unipolar hegemony. Like the British, it was challenged. The Brits were challenged by the Americans, Germans, French, Russians, among others. The Americans, before 1990, was challenged by the USSR and after 2014 by China and Russia. Meaning, for 25 odd years, the US was a solo superpower, sometimes known as a hyperpower. I prefer the word hyper over super because hyper is what the behavior of the U.S. was, rather than super. Let's spend a moment or two talking about the 25 or so years of unrivaled American hegemony. Essentially, a study in what happens when you give nukes to overeducated, often wealthy, democracy-loving, freedom-giving elites. And by liberal, I mean liberal in the small L sense, including both left and right wings in the U.S. political spectrum. Peace, you see, is never on the agenda. And just like the British and Roman, peace should only be present in the belly of the empire. Everyone else should be played and beaten. That is the only way to become and remain a hegemon. To me, and no, I am not an expert, and contrary to what you think, I am no historian either. So, for me, the real point when American dominance started was not when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 or when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, but in 1990, the year the U.S. built its coalition against the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, that it built and executed without any opposition, zero, or very little opposition, that it was early 1991. A strong U.S. itself would not have allowed it to happen. Or the US would have certainly hesitated in pulling off such an encounter in the first place. Instead, the US built a 35-odd country coalition, attacked and, in their own words, liberated Kuwait, invaded and attacked southern Iraq and the northern Kurdish Iraqi regions, forced massive sanctions and created a no-fly zone over the country. 
This lasted right to the 2003 reinvasion of Iraq. And, well, those two decades after that weren't good either. Anyhow, this display of impunity set in motion what I think is or was the opening innings of American hegemony. At its peak in the years 1991 to 2003, the U.S. was the single most powerful, unquestioned power in the world. If U.S. hegemony started with the invasion of Iraq, in 2014 it ended with another invasion. That would be the invasion of then Ukraine's Crimea by Russia. It was the inability of the U.S. to do anything about it, not covertly or overtly, to prevent the invasion, coupled with its inability to muster its own puppet government up to counter that invasion. In other words, hubris among the liberal elites resulted in showing that the U.S., while trying to figure out, you know, gender-neutral bathrooms, was an emperor with no clothes. Mind-boggingly, the Western liberal elites spent too much time expanding eastwards. The Ruskies got wind of a blatant ploy to install a US-friendly government in Kiev. The Russians overtly took Crimea, where they have their Black Sea fleet anyway, and really Crimea and eastern Ukraine is Orthodox Russian. So the Russian state expanded, and the brutal reality of geopolitik hit the Western powers for the first time since 1990. So again, that timeline. U.S. solo hyperpower, 1990 to 2014. Within that, 1991 to 2003, the U.S. was the undisputed top dog. I'm going to spend the rest of this episode talking about three things. One, what happened during the hegemony, i.e. First Gulf War, the war on Serbia, NATO, 9-11, war on terror, invasion of Iraq. Two, what caused its relative decline from 2003 to 2014, i.e. things like the Iraq War, Afghan War, the war on terror, the war on drugs, China, Russia, and protecting the empire and owning their problems. And lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the future and some recommendations. So what happened between 1990 and 2014? A former U.S. security advisor, Mr. Brzezinski, drew an expressive summary of the military foundation of Pax Americana shortly after the unipolar moment. And I am quoting, It contrasts to earlier empires, the scope and pervasiveness of American global power today are unique. Not only does the United States control all the world's oceans, its military legions are firmly perched on the western and eastern extremities of Eurasia. American vassals and tributaries, some yearning to be embraced by even more formal ties to Washington, dot the entire Eurasian continent. American global supremacy is buttered by an elaborate system of alliances and coalitions that literally span the globe. Beside, uh, that's the end of the quote, by the way, besides the military foundation, there were significant non-military international institutions backed by American financing and diplomacy, like the UN and the WTO. As mentioned earlier, 1990 to me was the turning point. Iraq had invaded and occupied Kuwait. The US, egged on by the UK, 
decided to, in inverted commas, do something about it, and went on and amassed a coalition of the willing that turned out to be 35 countries, including Arab ones, pushed Iraq out of Kuwait, occupied southern Iraq and northern Kurdish Iraq, imposed no-fly zones and harsh sanctions on the country as punishment. On the plus side, Kuwait was free. Many firsts here. No one opposed a U.S. invasion. If anyone had reservations, they bit their tongue. If anyone wanted to be on the right side of the shooting match, they signed up with a coalition invading Iraq. The U.S. stopped short of outright occupation. However, the other first big was the way the sanctions were not just pushed, but also executed. It set the stage for how the liberal democracies would treat the evildoers, i.e. the rest of the world, i.e. the non-liberal democracies. The 1990s were, or was, the American golden age geopolitically. The empire was stable, the USSR was done for, and the evil orthodox Ruskies were led by Yeltsin, who through neo-capitalism also allowed massive corruption and thus oversaw a humiliating less Russian decline. The Americans teased India with offshore services and China with offshore goods. The US vassal states such as Canada, Japan, South Korea, the EU also saw saw a boom time. These countries, with the end of the USSR, cut their defense spend and almost entirely ended up relying on the US taxpayer for their security needs. The boom and the decline of Russia gave the US and its vassal states, also known as allies, the chance to expand NATO eastwards. Scroll back to my episode 65 on NATO for more. And it brought the elite alliance to Russia's doorstep. Former Warsaw Pact and Baltic countries eventually joined NATO. NATO's sole purpose is to dismantle the Russian state as it stands, and now it was a stone's throw from St. Petersburg. For more information on the US-Russia tensions and rivalry, check out episode 25 called Russia vs. America. Anyway, back to this episode. The Kosovo War was an armed conflict in the Balkans. NATO, led by the US, intervened against the Serbs and dismantled Kosovo from the Serb political entity. Not too hard because the Balkans are a mess ethnically anyway, but it is for the first time, well it did for the first time, woke Yeltsin up from his slumber and forced him to take action. The US also bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade while they were at it. The Kosovo War was a wake-up call to anyone who paid any attention to the liberal war machine. Russia made a muted stand by sending a group of soldiers to Serbia, but in the end, the US won that battle. In my view, this was the high point of US hegemony. However, lurking in the background was something that would shake the empire to its core. After the Soviets had left Afghanistan in 1989, their puppet government fell in five years, i.e. by 1994. In 1994, Afghanistan was overrun by the Taliban and Somalia had become lawless. Religious zealots roamed free and used the land there for hiring and training purposes. Small attacks on U.S. shipping occurred, but so did a notable attack in New York City's World Trade Center in 1993. In 2001, September 11th, the U.S. was hit by massive attacks on its homeland, leading to an almost unimaginable amount of grief and anger, leading to the Afghan invasion in 2001. 
as well as a broader so-called war on terror. The interesting thing about the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan was that most countries supported the U.S. grief and many supported its war on terror. The groundswell of support was near huge, humongous. In early 2002, it became evident that the lurking threat in Afghanistan, Somalia, Iran, Iraq, and you know, that lot in the Middle East generally, could hold nasty consequences for geopolitical purposes. In short, since Afghanistan was already a tribal Stone Age society, a fancy war wasn't cutting much. Another solution needed to be found, and the added benefit of Iraq was that it was swimming in oil. All through 2002 and right up to April 2003, the US and UK built their case for war. The entire groundswell of support that had built up since 9-11 vanished overnight. A small coalition of the willing, mostly the UK and USA, went into Iraq looking for alleged weapons of mass destruction. None was ever found. On the positive side, though, Kuwait was still free, and now Iraq was technically hopefully on the right path, or that was the theory. This was the point, though. The moment when the US started to lose a lot of its power, it actually started with the loss of influence of power. You see, in 2003, it could not muster the support it needed to invade Iraq with impunity like it did just 12 years ago or 12 years before. The liberal elite of the time were known as neoconservatives or neocons, but were part of the same in-and-out war machine that had been around for decades. Even with the U.S. now fighting on two fronts and holding fort on many other fronts, such as bases in Europe and East Asia, as well as clandestine operations elsewhere, including the war on drugs in Latin America, it was powerful enough to hold its own and retain its hyper-power status. However, more trouble was brewing. The two wars were sucking the coffers dry and the US taxpayers were now funding the security of Europe, North America, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and a bunch of Middle Eastern countries. Eyes, therefore, were perfectly off the ball. And what was the ball? The ball was a resurgent Russia and increasingly rising China. The first shock to the system came in 2008-2009 when the U.S. economy self-imploded while the Chinese were able to hold on to their own. This financial crisis and subsequent recession was not just a nasty shock to the system, but required many Western central banks to literally bail out failed banks, car companies, and so on. The myth of capitalist endeavor was replaced by too big to fail companies that became just that, far too big to fail. The cash or digits in bank accounts, in banks there were also, by the way, the banks were bailed out too, was so-called printed out of thin air. Big companies saved and small companies who were actually in the whatever was left of capitalism were allowed to fail. All this time, US companies understood the advantages of making or buying lower-cost goods from mainly China, who were able to produce cheap products at amazing prices. Even the American-designed but Chinese-made Apple iPhone was built in China. The top U.S. companies, including Hollywood, began investing in the Chinese markets. Not since the massive movement of capital from Europe to the U.S. after World War I and II had the world seen such a movement of capital flow. To be fair, though, 
the capital only arrived in Europe off the backs of China in the African Latin American first place. So there was some rebalancing there, but that aside, all this was happening with the backdrop of Afghanistan and Iraq. Worse was still coming though. Since about 2006, WikiLeaks had been publishing various secrets about the rich and powerful in many countries. WikiLeaks released a report disclosing a serious nuclear accident at the Iranian Natanz nuclear facility in 2009. According to media reports, the accident may have been the direct result of a cyber attack at Iran's nuclear program carried out with the Stunext computer worm, a cyber weapon built jointly by the US and Israel. Soon after that, WikiLeaks began publishing documents supplied by US Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. In April 2010, WikiLeaks released the collateral murder videos which showed US soldiers fatally shooting 18 civilians from a helicopter in Iraq, including Reuters journalists. Reuters had previously made a request to the US government for the collateral murder video under the Freedom of Information Act, but had been denied. Julian Assange and others, who he, by the way, is a WikiLeaks guy, worked for a week to break the US military encryption of their videos. In 2010, WikiLeaks published the Iraq War Logs, a collection of about 400,000 United States field reports from the Iraq War covering periods from 2004 to 2009. Other Manning material published by WikiLeaks included the Afghanistan War Logs in July 2010 and the Guantanamo Bay Files in April 2011. WikiLeaks published a quarter of a million U.S. diplomatic cables known as Cablegate. In November 2010, the files showed the U.S. espionage against the United Nations and other world leaders. All this revealed tensions between the U.S. and its allies and exposed corruption in countries throughout the world as documented by U.S. diplomats, helping to spark the so-called Arab Spring. On the 24th of April 2011, WikiLeaks began publishing the Guantanamo Bay Files. 779 classified reports on prisoners past and present held by the U.S at the Guantanamo Bay detention camp in Cuba. The documents dated from 2002 to 2008 revealed prisoners, some of whom were coerced to confess, including children, the elderly, and mentally disabled. In July 2012, WikiLeaks began publishing the Syria Files, a collection of more than 2 million emails from Syrian political figures, government ministries, and companies. But wait, even worse was yet to come. In March 2013, Edward Snowden, a whistleblower who was working as a contractor for the U.S. government, published to the Guardian newspaper the nature of how the U.S. government and its Western allies spy on their own people, on each other, and for each other, in particular among the so-called Five Eyes Network of Anglo-Saxon-inspired English-speaking countries. But the revelation that the U.S. killed people and spied on its own citizens was not really the scandal in my view. It was how the security state went after Snowden, Manning, and Assange personally. You see, the myth of freedom of the press, privacy and rights of the individual, and the rule of law, etc., was, by this definition, or at least by this point, a big fat lie. The US, for all its social justice warrior language, was equally as nasty when it wanted to be. These scandals were the biggest and most damaging in recent U.S. history. Eventually, the U.S. debt trap also got worse. However, the U.S. dollar retained its strength. The U.S. government 
soon after the financial crisis, realized the power of the dollar and weaponized it against friends and foes alike, often imposing odd and end rules and fines, such as FATCA, F-A-C-T-A, look it up, all of these being extraterritorial reach. In this backdrop of China's rise, financial malice, bailouts of private companies at the expense of the little guy, and the incredible power of the surveillance security state, came the realization that the U.S. taxpayers were literally funding the defense of Japan, South Korea, Europe, and Canada. In other words, the empire was at overreach and still needed to do one last thing that was still outstanding, and that was to finish Russia. NATO expanded and grew eastwards until a red line was drawn in Ukraine where Russia invaded and took the Crimea. China claimed islands off the South China Sea and took them. All this time, the U.S. dithered on the Syrian civil war because people at home had had enough of wars and did not want to get involved. The U.S. supported the fall of the Libyan state and then lived to regret the decision. The U.S. botched the overthrow of the Turkish and Venezuelan governments. So, all of that in a nutshell, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that by 2014, the mechanisms of U.S. power had faded. It is not that the U.S. declined in power, but that others came up to meet it where it was. And with the onset of space, power projection, and cyber warfare, the very nature of power politics shifted. Having 10 carrier battle groups was great to project power. But to whom? The battle is hacking the local power grid or hacking mines using secret apps on phones. The 10 battle groups means nothing at that point. The U.S. is not a hyperpower anymore, but it remains a major superpower. The dollar remains the currency of choice for many, and that alone gives the U.S. still an amazing amount of leverage in 2022 as I speak. However, I want to leave you with one thought. For some crazy or scary, for some not so scary or crazy, the U.S. today and going into the future will be propped up by the EU, by Canada, Japan, and South Korea. They need the U.S. security state to function. They need the trade finance. They need to protect their investments. In my view, these countries, alongside some others such as India, Israel, and Saudi, will do whatever it takes for the U.S. and its military-industrial complex to function. The U.S. taxpayers may have run out of cash and willingness to defend Ukraine's borders, but the Germans have not. And as long as Uncle Sam is the one pulling the trigger and losing precious blood, it's fair game for everyone else. Another possibility could be that the European Union decide on creating a unified military power by itself, led by France and possibly Germany. The biggest issue other than all of this for the US is that countries like the European Union take on more of the burden for military adventure, but it's just not going to happen. At least I don't think so. What also is a risk for the U.S., and this is the single biggest one, is the economy. And on top of that, the single, single biggest one is Banan, the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar gives the U.S. strength. It allows it to bully other countries, 
bend people's will and do other weird and wonderful things. It is the currency of choice. It is what people use for exchange of goods over other currencies, especially for petroleum, the petrodollar. To keep the USD or US dollar as the number one, it allows for many things to function. It allows for the US stock markets to be powerful. It allows for wealth to be created. It allows for entrepreneurship in the US by attracting foreigners to the US. It allows for many things. It also allows for people trading amongst each other in US dollars. It's the ultimate weapon. And losing that would be the single biggest disaster. So what should the US do? It should do absolutely everything possible to keep the US dollar as the number one currency. What could it do? Well, it could go and bomb the hell out of anyone, even thinking about using euros or something else, as it has done. The hyperpower is over, and indeed it was over a while ago. But the superpower is still present, and it needs to be maintained from a US perspective. Could the US become a hyperpower again? It's possible. It would require the Chinese state to collapse and allow millions of people to go into abject poverty. It would need the Russian state to collapse. And they could collapse. It's possible. China has had 5,000 years of history of rise and fall. And Russia has had not 5,000 years, but long enough of rise and fall. And it's not just China and Russia. Other powers are creeping up, although they're not in competition directly with the U.S., just like China and Russia are, they are creeping up. Countries like India, for sure, also possibly Brazil, even Mexico. So there are challenges, but the U.S. is still the top dog, and it needs to do absolutely everything to maintain the U.S. power dominance, and that is done through the U.S. dollar. And to do that, my recommendation to U.S. policymakers, if anyone is listening, is to kill babies, slaughter people, and blow countries up and destroy everything possible, including do nuclear war to keep the dollar. Failing that, it ain't going to work. Now, will the US do all that? I am not so sure. Are we looking at an abyss where the US is declining significantly? I don't think so, because as I've said before, it's other powers that will prop the US up because they need the US security state actually possibly more than the US itself does. Anyhow, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Alternative History Podcast once again. Thank you so very much. Until next time. Mm-hmm.